We are continuing our series in Nehemiah, Nehemiah 3, if you have a Bible, uh, if you'd like to turn to Nehemiah 3. In 586 B.C., we learned that the Babylonians had invaded and destroyed Jerusalem, devastated the temple, and uh, leveled the protective wall around Jerusalem. Decades after that, in the mid-5th century B.C., a man named Nehemiah received permission to rebuild that decimated wall. Throughout this section... Nehemiah records the organizational structure that was needed to rebuild Jerusalem. This is a two-part message in this series where we pull from this passage some of the basic organizational principles Nehemiah used in the actual reconstruction of this wall around Jerusalem. The first of these principles is the simplification principle. The simplification principle. If we read through this entire passage, which we aren't going to do, primarily because I cannot pronounce half the names. Uh, if we, though, read through this passage, it becomes apparent that Nehemiah's organizational structure was simple instead of complicated. Simple. Notice Nehemiah 3, verse 1. Then Eliashib the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priest, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it. Consecration was a ceremonial act where that gate was declared sacred. They consecrated it and hung the doors. They built as far as the tower of the, 100, of the hundred and consecrated it. Then as far as the tower of Hananel, Verse 2, next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zachor, the son of Emery, built. Verse 3, also the sons of Hasnot built the fish gate. They laid its beam and hung its doors with bolts and bars. Notice something. Nehemiah organized around groupings such as the priests mentioned in verse 1, such as the men from Jericho are mentioned in verse 2, the sons of Hasnot are mentioned in verse 3, and on and on. These were groups of people that were already associated together before Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem. That means we shouldn't create additional organization if we don't need to. If there's already a facsimile, a reasonable facsimile of organization in place, then there's no need to create additional organization because it just complicates matters. There's no sense in having organization just for organization's sake. Organization should be based on need. And if there's not a specific need, then organization isn't necessary. That's something government bureaucratic agencies don't understand. That's one reason we need smaller government, not bigger government. This is the reason the trend among churches is to use what is called task forces uh, instead of committees. A task force instead of committees. The difference between them is more than just semantics. Task forces are different than 
committees in that a task force disbands itself, dissolves itself, after it achieves its you know, desired task. If a task force is established, it is given a singular objective, a budget, and a deadline, and once that objective is reached, then that task force is disbanded. An example of that, our present church constitution, and if you never read it, it's, it's interesting reading, great bedtime reading, just so powerful, impactful. Uh, our present church constitution is vague and nonspecific, so we need a newer and better document to govern us. And in order to do that, we need to put together a task force. That constitutional task force would then be a group of selected people, people who would want to be on that team, uh, that would meet on a consistent basis to evaluate our present constitution and other constitutions uh, from other congregations to find certain language and procedures that would be appropriate to adopt into our constitution. We would consult other constitutional documents because we don't need to reinvent the wheel. That group of both men and women would then rewrite our present constitution, present it to the elders to approve, and then the elders would present it to the congregation to approve. And once that constitution is accepted and adopted, then that constitutional task force would then be disbanded. Not to meet again. Another example. We put together a task force of four congregants. We wanted it small. Two men and two women to find someone to serve here as our family pastor. And we met often, often. And we read through countless resumes. And that was difficult. But we met. We had a group. We called them uh, the family pastor search team. But once Chris agreed to accept the position, then we disbanded that task force. Because the need that task force was intended to meet, that need no longer exists. Now, standing committees are different. Standing committees continue to exist if there is a present need for them to function or not. I understand in some cases uh, there, need, there are some needs that are ongoing, and that would necessitate a continuing committee. But more often than not, committees just complicate the organizational structure. I met a pastor once that inherited a stagnant congregation that averaged less than 300 people. It had, get this, 51 standing committees. Almost the entire congregation sat on some committee. This pastor said that the decision to purchase more toilet paper for the restrooms had to go through an actual committee process first. <laughs> he accepted that pastorate on the condition that all of the existing committees be dismantled except for the board of elders and deacons. Uh, his conditions were agreed to and that congregation doubled in size in three years. Organizational structure should be simple. It is the unanimous consensus among those that study churches there is much 
too much organizational machinery in the average congregation that inhibits effectiveness instead of helping it. That's the reason I have in my office on one of my shelves a book entitled Simple Church. Simple Church. Church should be simple. Jesus understood this organizational principle. He once fed an estimated some 15,000 people using just five loaves of bread and two small fishes. In order to do that, after he multiplied that food, he encouraged the disciples to have the people sit on the ground in organized groups so that he and his disciples could then better serve them that food. Notice Mark 6, verse 39. Then he, Jesus, commanded them, his disciples, to make them, the people needing food, all sit down in groups on the green grass. Verse 40, so they, the people needing food, sat down in ranks, in hundreds and in fifties. There's a difference between organization and regimentation. Regimentation is more uniform and ordered. I think of regimentation, I think of Mormon missionaries. Mormon missionaries, dark slacks, white shirt, dark tie, and riding a bummer of a bicycle. That's Mormon. They're regimented. If you've seen one Mormon missionary, you've seen them all. Um, notice Jesus, though, organized this multitude. He wasn't so regimented that he commanded the people to sit down in groups arranged alphabetically according to last names. No, that wasn't necessary. He probably just counted them off. Jesus didn't complicate the situation. Instead, he had a simple organizational scheme. Just have the people sit down in segregated groups of hundreds and fifties. Meaning, divide the multitude up into smaller groups of fifties and hundreds and have them sit down. In doing that, Jesus demonstrated that organization is not the same as regimentation. Don't miss this principle. The strongest organizations are the simplest. The strongest organizations are the simplest. For instance, compare an organization to a toy. Probably the simplest toy I can think of is a building block. I actually remember, I guess it had a profound impact on me, I remember putting large, oversized, solid, wooden building blocks together as a kindergartner. I have memories of that class. Um, simple, solid wooden building blocks seem almost indestructible. We could run over them with a Mack truck and it wouldn't affect them. In an analogous sense, the simplest organizations are the strongest. God interacts with man on a simple basis. That's the reason there are just 10 commandments. Not the 613 commandments the ancient Jewish rabbis extrapolated from those original 10 and the Mosaic Law. And in the New Testament, Jesus reduced those 10 commandments to just two commandments found in Matthew 22. Those commandments are, notice, love God, and second, love people. Love God and love people. It's that simple. If the U.S. government had been assigned the job of creating that moral code, then Moses would have left Mount Sinai after six months 
with a wheelbarrow full of marked up stone tablets. That's what would have happened. When federal laws were first codified in 1927, all of them fit into a single volume. All of them. In the 1980s, that single volume had expanded to 50 volumes, consisting of more than 23,000 pages. And now, it is now so much worse that literally no one knows exactly how many federal laws there are. There are new laws created, but then there are also laws created to amend old laws. And there are laws created to repeal older laws. Add to that the number of government regulations until there is nothing more complex and more inefficient than government bureaucracy. Organizational structure should be simple. That's the simplification principle. Second is the delegation principle. The delegation principle. In order to assist us in understanding this particular principle, I have included a map on the inside of the note sheet, a map. This map illustrates the general configuration of Jerusalem at the time of Nehemiah. Now, Jerusalem's size and shape has changed some throughout the centuries, but this is how Jerusalem was configured at Nehemiah's time around 445 B.C. This is the basic configuration and shape of ancient Jerusalem in the 5th century before Christ. This map also represents the actual outline, don't miss this, this is the outline of the reconstruction process as mentioned here in Nehemiah chapter 3. So, um, let's start at the top. Let's start at the sheep gate at the top of this diagram. The sheep gate. I can't get this thing. There, there is the sheep gate. So find the sheep gate, and I would suggest underline these as we go through them. Uh, we're going to start at the sheep gate, and then we're going to go in a counterclockwise direction. And if we go counterclockwise around the wall, we're going to find most of these gates mentioned in this chapter in their chronological order. Chronological order meaning the order in which these gates are mentioned in this passage. For instance, at the top of the diagram there is that sheep gate and then uh, moving on in a counterclockwise direction there is the fish gate mentioned in verse 3. Then there is the old gate mentioned in verse 6. The valley gate mentioned in verse 13. And the refuge gate, or dung gate, mentioned in verse 14. Uh, the excrement and manure from all the animals uh, would be brought through that dung gate and then dumped outside the city. And then the fountain gate is mentioned in verse 15. So keep moving counterclockwise. Then the water gate is mentioned in verse 26. That is the only mention of American politics in Scripture. The water gate. Right there. The horse gate in verse 28. And then the east gate in verse 29. This east gate is strategic because this is where, according to tradition, Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday.
And in a prophetical sense, we believe that Jesus, as the promised Messiah, is going to once more enter Jerusalem through that same eastern gate at his return to the earth to set up his millennial kingdom. Then notice there's the uh, muster gate mentioned in verse 31. This means that each of these ten gates mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 3 are mentioned in a chronological sequential order. The critical word in this passage is the word section. Section. It is used 13 times here. Now don't miss this. It seems that Nehemiah walked around Jerusalem counterclockwise as we just did and he divided Jerusalem up into sections. Nehemiah then assigned those different sections to different people groups to rebuild. One more time. Nehemiah divided Jerusalem up into sections and then assigned those different sections to different people and people groups to rebuild. Nehemiah delegated different responsibilities to different people because Nehemiah understood delegation. Delegation uh, doesn't come easily to me. Um, I have the capacity to do a lot, and I tend to do that instead of delegating tasks and projects to other people. And that's ultimately counterproductive. The classic example of this delegation principle, though, was Moses. And he learned that principle as part of his on-the-job training. Notice Exodus 18. Exodus 18. At the time Moses brought the Israelites out of Egypt, out of Egyptian bondage, conservative estimates are that the total number of people under his direction were about three million. Imagine pastoring three million people. Uh, three million people would be an impossible number for anyone to be hands-on responsible for. But it seemed that Moses was an obsessive, compulsive person to some degree, and he thought he had to do that. He just had to have his hands on all of it. Let's start reading at verse 13, Exodus 18. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. Notice the next phrase. And the people stood before Moses, meaning the people stood in a line waiting to see Moses. The people stood before Moses from morning until evening. Verse 14. So when Moses' father-in-law saw that he had thought that he did for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? Notice the next phrase. And all the people stand before you, how long? From morning until evening. The line of people stood before Moses, waiting to see Moses, from morning until evening. Verse 15, And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. Verse 16, When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. Verse 17, So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you do is not good. 
This is not good. Verse 18, Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out, for this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. It seems that Moses is acting as a pastor, essentially, in some cases. He was both a counselor and also an arbitrator and judge. Moses would answer the people's questions. He would offer the people counsel. He would solve problems. He would mediate disputes between the people. And he would render authoritative judgments. He acted as a judge often. That meant that those people that had problems and or questions would stand in line waiting to see Moses and this line would last from morning until evening which would have been a period of some 12 hours. Did he get a lunch break? I don't know. Uh, I have no idea. 12 hours he would do this. Moses would see person after person after person after person. He would answer question after question, address problem after problem after problem for 12 hours. Extensive counseling, addressing problems, listening to arguments, rendering judgments is stressful and can be draining and exhausting. I have, rend I have uh, included also on the note sheet uh, a fictitious diagram that illustrates Moses' original organizational scheme. Notice, uh, uh, in matters of agriculture, Moses was responsible for that. In matters of manufacturing, Moses was responsible for that. In matters of employment and unemployment, Moses was responsible for that. In matters of production or protection, Pardon me. Moses was responsible. This is the one I love. In the complaint section, Moses was responsible for that. I would not have been as gracious as Moses. I would have said, God, just kill him. Just wipe him out. Just, we don't need him. It's a, I can't deal with it. Uh, under welfare, Moses was responsible for that. Uh, it is apparent from this diagram that Moses originally tried to do it all himself. And not only was his organizational structure inefficient, he had been spread so thin, he was also exhausted. He had a brutal, brutal schedule. Moses' father-in-law had a solution for Moses. I might interject a footnote. His father-in-law was a man named Jethro, an unusual name. The only other Jethro I'm aware of was Jethro from the Beverly Hillbillies. For those of you that don't remember, that was a, an extremely intellectually powerful program. It just it was, granny was a mess. But anyway, that's Jethro on the left. Uh, Jethro, uh, the actor that was assigned that Jethro character was Max Bayer. His father was heavyweight champion, boxing champion. He's the only actor left alive from that famous television series. I believe his home is somewhere in Tahoe. Um, in fact, Daner Bailey says he knows him. I wasn't surprised. Daner knows everyone. Um, and Jethro said to his son-in-law, verse 19, Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel. And God will be with you. Stand before God for the people 
so that you may bring the difficulties to God. Verse 20, And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws. I might add, those would have been statutes and laws, instruction from the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. So Moses essentially was a biblical counselor. He appealed to the Scriptures in his response to the people. And show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Now please notice, Jethro had another organizational scheme. Verse 21, Moreover, you shall select from all the people, and notice the criteria he mentions, able men. Able men were men that were competent and capable to do this. Able men, such as fear God, these were men that were committed to God, men of truth, hating covetousness. I read that and I thought, if we made those same characteristics and criteria uh, mandatory for politicians, there would be forced mass resignations at all levels of government across these United States. How many men and women meet that criteria? And place them and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. Verse 22, And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter, meaning every difficult matter, every serious matter, they shall bring to you. But every small matter, they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. Verse 23, If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all the people will also go to their place in peace. Verse 24, So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses was teachable. He was teachable. These were instructions from Jethro, and he listened and he implemented them. Verse 25, And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. Verse 26, So they judged the people at all times. The hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. These were strategic instructions. Jethro said, bring the smaller matters to other capable men and bring only the more serious and difficult matters to Moses. I have found, though, that that approach is sometimes easier said than done. So I have sometimes found myself in another Moses mess. In an ideal situation, it is better to select others capable, able, godly people that can address smaller matters and then the larger and more serious matters should be brought to me, per Jethro. That was the ultimate Moses management approach to problem solving. The solution to this problem of overextending himself. I mean, he basically 
is on burnt-out mode, was for Moses to select some capable men to assist him in ministering to all these people. Other men would be assigned to different size groups of Israelites. Some of the more capable men would be responsible for a thousand people. Some of them less capable men might be assigned to just ten people. These men that Moses would select would then in turn deal with the smaller problems and bring only the more serious and difficult issues to Moses. So Moses did as his father-in-law Jethro had suggested and he delegated and delegated and delegated some of these responsibilities to men other than himself. The positive benefits of that solution was that more people needing help more people were able to see someone about a question or about a problem or a dispute and see them sooner than waiting in line for hours and hours or days to see Moses. Meaning the people's needs were met and sooner than it would have been. And Moses saved his health to the extent that when he died at age 120, According to Deuteronomy 34, verse 7, he was still in outstanding health and condition. He even still had 20-20 vision. That's the delegation principle in action. Now, this is a practical part. There is a temptation, though, for someone to just dump a task or project onto someone instead of instead of delegating that task or project to someone that is better suited to that task or project. Notice some of the basic differences between dumping and delegating. Dumping. Dumping most often happens on the spur of the moment. Here, Joe, can you take care of this for me? Uh, Susie, I forgot about that meeting. Could you go in there and tell me what happens after? Now, some of that is okay, but not as a rule. Dumping doesn't take into account someone's education, training, skill set, and interest, which means a less efficient use of someone's time and energy. Dumping ignores the need for information, coaching, and preparation. Instead, the person that is dumped on selected to be dumped on to do a task must battle for survival on his own because he hasn't had any instruction. There's been no training. Dumping frequently results from anxiety, which causes managers to just get rid of the problem by giving it to someone else to solve. Dr. Roger Fritz said this, Dumping is indiscriminate. It's done for expedience, taking no account of the strengths and weaknesses of the person who was supposed to do the work. In its worst form, it's a matter of the manager dumping whatever he or she doesn't personally want to do. How often does that happen? It's demeaning and perpetuates unhealthy workplace hierarchies. That's dumping. And I've dumped before. Um, I know I have. Delegating. Delegating is the careful selection of the right person whose skill set and strengths are matched to the needs of the task at hand. Delegating gives the assigned person the authority to do the job. Delegating involves discussing performance expectations and a schedule for evaluation 
and feedback. Delegating establishes what needs to be done and leaves the how to do it up to the person that has delegated the job. Delegating encourages independent action. Delegating doesn't relieve the delegator of being responsible to step in if there's a problem. Delegating also includes giving recognition for a job well done. That means comparing, dumping, and delegating. That means most often it is better to delegate than to dump. And that's what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah delegated. There are some questions we ought to ask before delegating anything. Let me do these quickly. One, what is it that needs to be done? What is it that needs to be done? And the answer needs to be precise. Second, why does it need to be done? Why? That is an important question because why something needs to be done sometimes determines the how something needs to be done. Three, when does it need to be done? Timing is critical. Four, who would be the best person to do it? Who would be the best person to select? to do this. The standard recommendation is, and this is not true in all cases, as a rule though, if someone is able to do something 80% as good as we are able to do that something, then give them the job. There is something more important than ability, and that is the ability to recognize ability in someone. Five, how well must it be done? How well must it be done? Not every project warrants the same meticulous attention. I believe Einstein said, one of the signs of genius is knowing what to overlook. Six, how much money is available for getting it done? How much money is available? Factor in inflation. Seven, what training is needed for getting it done? What training is needed? Most people miss this. Remember, delegating is sometimes a developmental issue. Delegating is also sometimes a developmental issue. Delegating something is more than just getting something done. It is intended to develop the person that that project is delegated to. One example is this past Sunday morning, Chris spoke. I wanted Chris to speak because I wanted to introduce him to our congregation at both services. But So I delegated him that task. You have a sermon to prepare and a sermon to pre- present. And, and he did. And, uh, but it was more than that. It was part of his developmental process. Because we will sit down this week. We're going to sit down and go through that message. And we're going to help him develop another message. And we're going to continue to do that to develop him as a preacher. So it's more than just delegating. It's part of the developmental process. Andrew Carnegie was one of uh, this nation's richest men. And uh, one of the greatest philanthropist this nation has ever had. He gave to charities and foundations the modern equivalent of $5.2 billion. Most people recognize the name Carnegie because he built the famous Carnegie Hall in New York City. Although it didn't happen, for some reason uh, his wishes weren't uh, accepted, Mr. 
Carnegie wanted this epitaph on his tombstone. That epitaph he wanted said, Here lies a man who knew how to enlist in his service better men than himself. That's the delegation principle. Number three is the participation principle. Participation principle. As we read through this, there was almost, almost unanimous participation among the Jerusalem people. Nehemiah was able to solicitate participation from a large and wide grouping of individuals. All together, 38 different individual workers are named in this passage, and altogether 42 different groups are identified in this passage. For instance, in Nehemiah, in verse 1, Nehemiah 3, Nehemiah mentions priests. In verse 8, he mentions goldsmiths. In verse 32, he mentions merchants. And then beginning at verse 9, going down through the middle part of this passage, he mentions at least eight leaders. In verse 9, verse 12, and then verses 14 through 19. The unusual part of this section is that those leaders that are mentioned here represent both middle management and upper management people. If I can use those words, that's our modern vernacular, if I can use those descriptive words uh, for these persons. These were management types, not just uh, blue-collar people per se, uh, entry-level people. These were management people. The men that were acting as management were actually, we learn, causing Nehemiah's job to be harder. And the reason is that sometimes people in managerial roles and strategic leadership positions are more accustomed to giving orders and instructions and are not so used to accepting them. An example of that, in the 1980s, four men who were senior pastors of mega churches had been assigned by a publishing company the task, the specific task, a project, of meeting together on a regular basis once a month in a hotel. Those men were to uh, sequester themselves in a hotel for two and three days at a time and during that time create curriculum for adult Bible studies. Those men were all, prior to this, successful authors. Um, those four men together pastored more than 100,000 people and each one of them were strong influential personalities. I had somewhat of a relationship with three of the four a professional writer from this publishing company had been assigned to assist them and he was there to help them as a professional writer to uh, help them in the creation of this curriculum and one of the pastors shared with me in private that this professional writer was extremely frustrated because it seemed uh, to him we weren't so anxious to accept all of his suggestions um, he said, it seemed that we were just frustrating him and driving him nuts. So then one of those pastors said to this writer, he said, listen, we apologize. Seriously, we, we don't 
mean to frustrate you. That is not our intention, and we're so sorry. It's just that we're so used to being the tellers and not the tellees. And that was a problem. That posed a problem since people that are strong, aggressive personalities in strategic management and leadership positions, as a general rule, have a harder time cooperating with an unknown someone inserted in some sense positioned above them. These management people, and especially strong entrepreneurial types, also sometimes have more problems working with each other than with non-management types. Notice, though, that Nehemiah, as we read through this, does a fantastic job getting all these managerial types and leaders to work together and to follow his instructions. That was a significant achievement. Because as John Maxwell said, attempting to lead managers and leaders is analogous to attempting to herd cats. Notice something else interesting. Verse 12. Verse 12. And next to him, Shalom, Shalom, the son of Helish, leader of half the district of Jerusalem. So he is a strategic man. Notice, he and his daughters made repairs, meaning made repairs on this reconstructed wall. This man, Shalom, could have been a single parent because there's no mention of his wife. It was just himself and his daughters. But all of them worked on this section of the wall. But Nehemiah was able to convince entire families to work together in order to rebuild this wall. Notice, though, that although Nehemiah was successful at convincing most people to participate in this project, he still didn't get total, absolute, 100% participation. Nehemiah was unable to get total participation from the people. Verse 5, notice, next to them, the Tekoites made repairs, but, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. Tekoa was a small town about 11 miles from Jerusalem. Some of these Tekoites came to Jerusalem so that they might help on this project. But notice that the nobles from Tekoa refused to do anything. These men did not put their shoulders to the work. Uh, For some reason, these nobles didn't want to get their hands dirty. Uh, It's possible these nobles thought they were too good to do actual manual labor. I personally believe there's something wrong with someone who thinks he's above doing that. And even now, some people just don't want to get down and get grubby. And although Nehemiah did better than most leaders have done, no matter how exceptional someone is at managing people or leading people no one can convince everyone to participate remember general Gideon from the Old Testament he was a judge in the Old Testament Gideon started out with 32,000 troops and in the end he had just 300 men who consented and participated in this battle for the Lord, meaning that Gideon was able to convince less than 1% of his original number of men to participate in that battle. The fact is, none of us as leaders 
are going to get 100% participation. But the secret to success for any organization and any congregation has been and still is convincing congregants to become participants instead of just spectators. I have said this often. Someone has described the average evangelical congregation as resembling a professional football game. 70,000 people sitting in the stands in desperate need of exercise, watching 22 men on the field in desperate need of rest. That's the church. It's the few that do so much. The most effective leaders are those individuals that are able to convince the greatest percentage of people to cooperate and participate. And I have said publicly, my greatest failure as a pastor here is my failure in convincing more people to participate. At the beginning of 2022, we should understand that the most important statistic in this church isn't our Sunday morning attendance. It isn't the actual number of conversions and baptism. It isn't the amount of our income, but the most significant statistic is the number of congregants that are participating and ministering. Just this past month, tornadoes tore through Kentucky. Some of those tornadoes reached category EF4 with winds exceeding 190 miles per hour. That's severe. There were 90 confirmed dead. That number might be higher now. And there was massive, massive widespread damage to structures. It's interesting. I, I saw some interviewed, some pastors interviewed. Churches in those affected regions were expending themselves in ministering to the needs of people that had suffered substantial loss. I heard about one church that started a, quote, chainsaw ministry. Now, I keep, when I think chainsaw, I think of chain call massacre, but that's a different deal. Chainsaw ministry, because of all the downed trees from those tornadoes, men that had experience using chainsaws were needed to go out and cut away and clear away all the trees and damage that those, those trees had done from the tornadoes. A chainsaw ministry. That's fantastic. Unless someone's actually in an intensive care unit, there's not much justification for a non-participatory Christian. No one person can do everything as Moses found out, but all people could do something, fill up, fill up an Operation Christmas Child box, help paint the children's classrooms, and that's happening soon. Um, help teach a children's class once a month, and that is an urgent and immediate need. Attend the men or women's prayer time. Be a greeter. We need greeters. Teach an adult small group Bible study. I wish there was someone that was capable and gifted that would start a recovery program. Help cook for the men's breakfast. Be a part of the take a meal program. Volunteer to be part of the Samaritans, that group of volunteers that want to just meet basic needs people have. Uh, there's a need now to help repair a home for a single mother who has six children 
and she lives in abject poverty. And we need, we need people to volunteer say, we'll help do that. It starts next Saturday. I could go on and on and on and on and on. There are all these needs. We need people to step up and help meet those needs. And we don't need the same people doing it again and again and again all the time. We're burning them out. I heard about an arrogant pastor that often boasted that he was so gifted, it didn't require long periods of study and time for him to think of insightful and thought-provoking biblical content for his sermons. In fact, he said in a braggadocious manner that he got most all his best thoughts and comments just walking from his house to the church on Sunday morning before the service. It just so happened that his house was the parsonage situated right beside the church. What seems that his elder board had a different opinion uh, on that subject. Those men met together and decided to purchase him a new home 15 miles from the church so that he could have more time to come up with better sermon material. It probably wouldn't matter if I pastored here and commuted from Los Angeles. I would still need help and better sermon material. I am gifted. I understand that. I am gifted to a degree. I can work hard. I can work very hard and long hours up to a point. All of us still have limitations. I cannot do it all, just as Moses could not do it all. And there's nothing more frustrating than to see talented and gifted people who claim to love Jesus do absolutely nothing with those unique abilities God has given them. Please understand, God didn't save us to sit. So in 2020, I've said it before, get up off your blessed assurance and do something for God. Remember, Christianity is not a spectator sport. One of the strangest stories I ever heard comes from the insurance claim form. I understand this is authentic. The insurance claim form of a bricklayer who was injured at a construction site. This particular account has been published in a number of sources, so this might sound familiar. This bricklayer was attempting to get a load of bricks down from the top floor of a building without, without asking for help from anyone else. He attempted to do it alone. That was a mistake. He said this on the insurance form. It would have taken too much time, too long, to carry all the bricks down by hand. So I decided to put the bricks in a wheelbarrow and lower them down by a pulley, which I had fastened to the top of the building. After tying the rope securely at ground level, I then went up to the top of the building. I fastened the rope around the barrel, loaded it with bricks, and swung it over the sidewalk over the side of the building, over the sidewalk for the descent. Then I went down to the sidewalk, untied the rope, held it securely to slowly guide the wheelbarrow down. But since I weigh only 140 pounds, 
The 500-pound load jerked me from the ground so fast that I didn't have time to think about letting go of the rope, and as I passed between the second and third floors, I met the wheelbarrow coming down. That accounts for the bruises and the lacerations on my upper body. I held onto the rope tight until I reached the top, where my hand became jammed into the pulley. That accounts for my broken thumb. At the same time, though, the wheelbarrow hit the sidewalk so hard that the bottom fell out. With the weight of the bricks gone, the barrel only weighed about 40 pounds. At this point, my 140-pound body began a rapid descent, and I met the empty wheelbarrow coming up. That accounts for my broken ankle. Slowed down only slightly, I continued the descent and landed on the pile of bricks. That accounts for my sprained back and broken collarbone. At that point, I lost my presence of mind completely, and I let go of the rope, and the empty wheelbarrow came crashing down on me. That accounts for my head injuries. And as for the last question on the insurance form, this is that question, what would I do if the same situation presented itself again? This bricklayer said, please be advised that next time I'm going to ask someone to help me. The point of all that craziness is that no one can do it alone. This bricklayer, I'm sure gifted, couldn't do it alone. Nehemiah, gifted, I'm sure, couldn't do it alone. I can't do it alone either. So the question is, in 2022, are you going to be a spectator? Just sit and watch others do the work? Or are you going to be a participant? That's the question. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for what we've learned. There are many people in this room who do so much. So, so much. Sometimes I'm concerned for their health, their physical health, their emotional health, because they do so much. Without complaint, I pray you'll bless them. I pray that others, though, will step up and help so that they're not overloaded like they have been. So, God, we just commit this to you. I'm not the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit can do what I can't do, and he can convict the hearts of the people in this room who literally do nothing, that they can do something. And I'm not here to tell people what they can do, because I don't know. I don't know what best fits them. I don't know what aptitudes they have or gifts they have or abilities they have in so many cases. But I pray, God, that we will determine we're going to be different. We're going to be involved. We're going to participate. We're not just going to sit on the sidelines. We're going to get in the game. So, Father, take this message, use it to make a difference in the hearts of the people who've listened. And I thank you and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand?